Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. A microphone slip-up reveals how some injured service personnel are treated when they ask for compensation. They were saying, what do you expect? He is Welsh and all these kind of comments. He can't be that intelligent if he doesn't know what's going on with the case. It was just you know, really stupid, juvenile, unprofessional stuff. We'll talk to the army veteran who's exposed the story as the government promises change. Also this week, a new chief for defence intelligence. Does it matter that they're a civilian? It's quite rare now to have operations which are just solely one agency. They tend to operate together, and that is what is demonstrably the case with this appointment. And remembering the man who thawed the Cold War, allowing the military map of Europe to be redrawn. What Gorbachev showed from the moment he then became leader of the Soviet Union was that he was not going to send military force to destroy his neighbouring countries. It is part of the contracts between the nation and those who serve it that if that service drastically changes their life, the nation will do all it can to compensate for that. But the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme, AFCS, and associated tribunals which decide payouts for injured personnel and veterans are facing accusations of lacking humanity and damaging those they seek to help. It also seems some ministers may at least partly agree. The Ministry of Defence says it will accelerate improvements after the Daily Telegraph revealed how a serving officer was laughed at and insulted by an assessment panel who'd forgotten to mute their microphones. The paper's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, is himself an army veteran. It was awful to hear the guy said to me that, that they made this reference to his, um, he'd been injured in Afghanistan, I think in 2009, been blown up. And, and one of the comments they made was, well, he doesn't look like he's been blown up. He said, well, you know, how do you know? I mean, so many of these injuries are not visible, either, either physical in- injuries that are not visible to see or you know, internal injuries with you know, mental health issues and so on and so forth. So who are they to, to make comments like that? It's, it's so crass and speaks of a, of, a, of a lack of understanding of the process they were a part of. They were a, a tribunal, an appeal tribunal appointed by the Ministry of Justice to advise MOD. So this, this, this was a human failing rather than an AFCS failing, but to read the comments they made and to speak to the guy that had to hear them, it was appalling behaviour. I mean, nobody should be subjected to that kind of language and that kind of attitude. So this was the, the accident of the panel who left their microphones on, uh, not the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme per se. What else was said? I mean, how it came about was that there'd been a technical snafu. So they were on a Zoom meeting, but the audio didn't work. So they'd called the chap on phone. And then in the 10 minute recess, they didn't mute the phone. And so you could hear every word they were saying. So they were also discussing, they were saying that his case was kicking the can down the road. And if he had any sense, he'd drop the case. And they were saying, well, you know, what do you expect? He is Welsh and all these kind of comments. He can't be that intelligent if he doesn't know what's going on with the case. And it was just, you know, really stupid, juvenile, unprofessional stuff. And I mean, this guy was a soldier of 26 years standing. Not that anybody should be treated to this kind of language or approach in a professional panel, but it just totally speaks of the lack of awareness of military matters, the lack of understanding of what these people were part of. And it echoes many of the messages I've heard from other veterans and and serving people as well. You say it echoes the messages that you've had from other, uh, other veterans. It's not a one-off then? No, I know personally uh, a few people who have had very poor experiences under AFCS. I have 
been in contact both before and after this article was published with, with many people saying saying similar and I don't doubt their case but I don't know them personally but speaking from personal experience friends of mine who I do know have had have had poor experiences I have heard from other people who have had positive experiences as well so I'm not suggesting it's all bad but I'm suggesting that there does seem to be something systemically wrong this seems to be boiled right down to a very much a legal process where the correct requirement to get value for money for the taxpayer is almost pushed right to the limit and and it's almost taken on the kind of relationship you have with your car insurance company when they try and boil down any claim to to nothing at all so there's no humanity in here there's no acceptance that there's a human being at at the center of it and a family as well and that goes into the length of time it takes to to get any kind of answer the, the length of time it takes to be able to lodge an appeal and to get a response to any letters one of the guys that was in the article, James Hill, the Royal Marine, he said it took seven years for his case to be answered. And when he got a result, it was just a, a piece of paper saying, congratulations, you've won, here's your payout. I mean, you know, good, thank you, that's, that's great. But it's just so flat, there's no, there's no humanity to it. It certainly sounds really gruelling, the kind of things that, that you describe. What has been the effect of the process on those you've spoken to? Well, they've been intensely frustrated. Some of them have said they thought about giving up. Some of them kept going because they knew others would give up and they have to have to try and stick in there and change the system. Um, some people spoke of, of people they knew who had got into extreme financial difficulty because they'd either not been able to work, either because they were physically unable to, or they just it was just such a pressure on the family. I, I mean, it, it's horrific. This, this bleeds out into families and children and wider society. So it, it's that corrosive feel of it, this, this sort of lack of, of speed of the system, as well as, mm. as, well as this feeling that they're trying to minimise the... The damages and, and only only pay out the the, the lowest they, they can. What's the effect on you when you hear these stories as a veteran? Well, uh, I'd like to say shock, although I think you know disappointing. Enough, I think I'm over that. I still feel angry. Um, I mean, I don't I don't feel shocked because I've heard so many of them. Um, I still feel angry, uh, and I then calm down a bit and and I, I'm thankful yet again that I've that I've got a voice. You know, I've I've jumped ship. Uh, turn to the dark side, become a journalist, um, and I now have I now have a platform that I'm able to to highlight these issues. So it's it's intensely frustrating for me, which is nothing at all as it is for the for the individuals going through it. But at least I'm able to highlight these issues. It's just disappointing that it seems to take you know the national press to really shine a light on this to get things moving. The Veterans Minister, Johnny Mercer, has said he will totally reform this compensation system if he remains in post under the new Prime Minister. The Ministry of Defence has promised an early review of the system this autumn instead of next spring. What do you make of those responses? Yeah, I mean, that's great. All positive stuff. Um, I'm in the kind of actions, not words, judgmental panel. I mean, the difficulty here is that, that so Johnny Mercer's in charge of the Office for Veterans Affairs, a new construct. Now, the Office for Veterans Affairs is part of the Cabinet Office. Veterans UK and the AFCS process is part of the MOD. So veterans, once they've left, they are, they are civilians. So, and I think this is part of the, part of the issue here, that that, that that idea that, well, a lot, of them are, a lot of them are civilians, that seems to kind of fall between the cracks. MOD is very much a forward-facing department. It's looking at the baddies in the future and um, ships with dodgy propellers and all the rest of it. And it almost culturally doesn't look to those people who have served and are now in the veteran community. So the Office of Veterans Affairs says, well, that's fine. We, we'll get our arms around these people. We'll look after them. But, but they are outside the MOD. So when the OVA turns around to the 
Department of Health, Department of Education, local councils, etc., etc., for housing and what have you, you know, because they're not in the MOD, are they going to have enough clout? Mm. And are these people, are veterans going to fall fall in the cracks in between? So, so I don't know. I think the, the set, setting up of the OVA is a good thing because it, it is a focus. Um, Johnny Mercer seems very, very committed to this on the very, a few occasions I've spoken to him. If he remains in post, then let's let's see. But but I think that that split between the MOD and the OVA that sits outside the MOD is it could be problematic. I hope it's not going to be, but it could be. Dominic Nichols, Defence and Security Editor at the Daily Telegraph. Well, a spokesman for the Ministry of Defence told BFBS, we are extremely sorry that some people's experience of the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme has fallen so far short of the standards we expect and will be taking action to ensure it doesn't happen again. They also said MOD ministers will work closely with the Office for Veterans Affairs and Ministry of Justice to take all necessary steps to improve people's experience and deal with anyone unable to maintain the high standards we expect. This is Zidrev. The last six months of war in Ukraine have shone a spotlight on the work of a previously little-known part of the UK's defence establishment. Short daily briefings from defence intelligence posted on Twitter regularly get worldwide coverage. But a significant change has just happened at the top of defence intelligence. General Sir James Hockenhull has moved on to lead UK Strategic Command. And for the first time, the new Chief of Defence Intelligence is a civilian, a former Director General at GCHQ, Adrian Bird. So what kind of organisation is he now heading up and what does it do? Baroness Pauline Neville-Jones knows Defence Intelligence well, having chaired the UK's Joint Intelligence Committee before becoming a security minister. It's an important part of the defence and security machinery of the country. It's responsible, obviously, for operational intelligence, but also for longer range understanding of a military situation. And also, it has responsibilities that range into operational capability of both weaponry as well as you know, the battlefield scene. So this is a key job to be head of that. And it's a very important part of what is increasingly an integrated activity right across the defence and security scene. So where does defence intelligence fit in among the other intelligence agencies? Because we know MI5 looks at domestic threats, MI6 looks at overseas threats, GCHQ is about information gathering. So what's the job for defence intelligence? Well, you've identified three, three separate uh, activities. And the defence intelligence, I think I've, I've just tried to explain, is both you know, understanding of operational, one's own operational capabilities, but also, of course, the dispositions of the enemy. Uh, what you're interested in is both their capabilities and indeed how they are operating uh, or intend to operate on the battlefield, which is what we've been hearing from them you know, during the Ukraine conflict. But what is important, I think, these days is the understanding that though you have different agencies with different responsibilities and different accountabilities to their various secretaries of state, they increasingly operate as teams. So it's quite rare now to have operations which are just solely one agency. They tend to operate together uh, in an integrated fashion. Uh, And that is what is demonstrably uh, the case with this appointment uh, in in uh, defence intelligence, that the capabilities of somebody who's been in GCHQ are regarded as being extremely relevant uh, and and helpful to uh, the operational capability of uh, defence intelligence. 
So with that closer working together, that greater integration, would you say the way defense intelligence works is similar to the way MI6 would work, for example? No, they have different responsibilities. And MI6 do things that wouldn't enter into the activities of defense intelligence. And the reverse is also true. But what is increasingly the case is they need each other's capabilities. So you get very much more team working. And in the case of defense intelligence, if you think for a moment these days, and the, the Ukraine war shows this very clearly, both your domestic infrastructure can be a target of the enemy, your uh, your operational capabilities can be their target. Uh, you knew you need to protect your communications, which are of course increasingly electronic. All of those things mean that you have to have capabilities that go you know, beyond say, the traditional command structure of, of the Ministry of Defence are, are, are very much the, the, the knowledge of the, and the capability of uh, GCHQ. I mean, they are the, you know, the SIGINT organisation, which both protects our, our own communications and our own infrastructure, and at the same time, of course, is responsible for understanding and indeed impeding the activities of the enemy. And what exactly has changed in the nature of the threats, the security landscape, which means that this closer working together is needed? Well, I suppose the single word is cyber. It is the electronic nature of both attack and defence these days. Uh, And that is why GCHQ becomes increasingly important to the operational capabilities of other services. Two thirds of defence intelligence staff are servicemen and women, a third are civilians. It's already a mixed organisation. How significant do you think it is or or isn't to have the first civilian chief of defence intelligence? I think that somebody in the service will probably be better uh, able to to tell you that. Uh, What I think it represents is the fact that we now work in a fused and integrated world. And uh, whether you start off in one organization tells you less, I think, about how you may end up than used to be the case. Uh, people's capabilities do range right across, the, right across the piece in government. And what do you make of the much more public profile for defense intelligence since Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I think it tells you that the military now regard the informing civilian populations as being an important part of a democratic accountability of government, but also I think it's information warfare, you know, what people understand about both those they support and their motives, and also what they understand about the activities of the enemy are an increasingly important part of war itself. Uh, and it's, it is not you know, necessarily very intelligent, <laughs> use it in the, in, the, in the normal sense of the word, uh, to keep all this secret to yourself and to keep it all private to government, and that it is actually a legitimate part of of public information. Former head of the UK's Joint Intelligence Committee, Baroness Pauline Neville-Jones. Well, one of the things Defence Intelligence has been telling us now for weeks is that a Ukrainian counteroffensive was being planned in the south. Now it started with a mission to retake the city of Kherson from Russia. The president's office says there has been fierce fighting and powerful explosions throughout the region. But Ukraine will probably not want to use the same tactics we've seen from Russia. Moscow's forces have taken cities largely by bombing them into submission. Doing that to Kherson would defeat the object of recapturing it. So how do you take a city 
without flattening it. It's something UK forces had to do when they invaded Iraq in 2003. The southern city of Basra was the key strategic target. Well, Colonel Tim Collins commanded 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment, in that invasion. Their job was to secure oil fields and land around Basra to enable its capture. The circumstance in the, the first Gulf War was removing the Iraqis, but in the second Gulf War, when Basra became the target, the, the object was to liberate the Iraqis. So flattening them would, would, was never part of the plan. It was always the intention that the, the regime would be defeated, but by a combination of allied troops and popular uprising by the Iraqi people. So it was expected to a great extent the Iraqis would liberate Basra themselves, which in fact they did. Presumably you have to use a certain amount of artillery in this kind of operation. You can't do it without any damage. How do you balance that military effect with the collateral cost? Well, artillery is important in order to prepare the ground when you you are going into a contested city. There's contested cities where the defender is defending their homeland. There's contested cities where uh, an enemy has taken the city and um, troops are looking to liberate it. And that's the case in Kherson. So this isn't the liberation of Berlin, for instance, uh, where heavy artillery is used to smash their way block by block. And the intention, I suspect, in Kherson is A, to liberate the city as intact as it can possibly be, but also to fix the Russian garrison, which is inside the city to a great extent, because that's the Russians' vulnerability. They have a garrison in the city which is to a large extent cut off from its supply lines because of the Dnieper River. Um, And the likelihood is that um, when encircled, that um, garrison will have to surrender. That would be an optimal uh, and ideal situation for the Ukrainians. But even if that doesn't happen, what it does is it fixes Russian troops in that area and their attempts to continually resupply the beleaguered garrison means that they've presented a target for attack which again is attritional against the Russians. So there's no good solution for the Russians. The one thing that's not on the agenda is destroying Kherson itself. And if you had the opportunity, what would you be advising Ukraine's forces about their push to retake Kherson? Well, the the, the thing uh, you you have to balance is that whilst starving the garrison, the the, the, uh, Russian garrison is one thing, you're also starving the people of Kherson um, at the same time. So there's a balance to be struck there. But I think that the opportunity to so um, beleaguer the, the Russian garrison that they run out of ammunition um, and run, run out of supply, resupply and petrol and everything else they need, the point where they have to surrender, is probably um, a good way of, A, ensuring that the Russians aren't up to uh, any mischief elsewhere because their whole focus is going to have to be on supplying and supporting this garrison, much in the way that the Germans in the Second World War found themselves fixed with the uh, the siege of uh, Stalingrad, they had to keep resupplying and they couldn't keep resupplying Stalingrad. And that was ultimately what led to the defeat. I think that's going to be the case in Kherson as well. Obviously, the situations are very different if you compare Ukraine to what you went through in Iraq. What lessons do you think, if there are any, that Ukraine can learn from the capture of Basra or indeed the Iraq war more widely? Well, I think that um, the, the, the broader lessons that we learned um, are the strategic lessons is that um, one of the principles of war is the selection and maintenance of the aim. Um, Long before the war, the intention, um, certainly at the highest levels, was to bring about the defeat of Saddam's regime through the the Iraqi people and his military in particular. 
And for that reason, in the, the years and months leading up to that, there was an intensive operational, offensive operational information campaign aimed at both the Iraqi people and particularly at the generals and the high, um, the, the, the high military leadership. And, and that was being successful. Then having actually um, conducted a, a ground invasion, um, the UK was complicit with the decision from uh, Samata buffoons to disband the Iraqi army. And that itself created the insurgency, nothing else. And uh, that was a strategic mistake. And I think we have to learn from our mistakes, selection and maintenance of the aim. Retired Colonel Tim Collins. We finish this week by assessing the legacy of the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, who's died at the age of 91. He presided over the breakup of the communist superpower after liberalizing its regime and warming relations with the West. We'll talk in a moment to someone who was in Moscow for those historic moments. But first, James Hurst looks at the military legacy of the man who thawed the Cold War. I would like to convey to the people of Britain the best wishes from the people of the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev spoke warmly in Downing Street after meeting Margaret Thatcher in 1989. She had famously described him as someone she could do business with, despite their many differences. Crucially, she had also persuaded US President Ronald Reagan that Mr Gorbachev could be trusted. My Mr General Secretary, though my pronunciation may give you difficulty, the maxim is dovayai no provayai. Trust, but verify. (laughs) The two leaders put the brakes on the 1980s nuclear arms race, agreeing in 1987 that both would give up ground-based intermediate-range missiles that could have been used for a nuclear war in Europe, and each also destroyed hundreds of warheads. They said a nuclear war could not be won and must never be fought. Mr Gorbachev's motives were also seen by some as financial. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was draining his country's coffers. He would bring that war to an end and also cut back on conventional forces. But he will, of course, be remembered most for allowing the map of Europe to be redrawn, for not standing in the way of states wanting to break away from the Soviet Union. Former Foreign Secretary Malcolm Rifkind. What Gorbachev showed from the moment he then became leader of the Soviet Union was that he was not going to send military force to destroy his neighbouring countries. When the Baltic states wanted to become independent, he he refused to uh, intervene with his army. That is not to say Gorbachev's reforms were ever intended to break up the Soviet Union. Professor Nina Khrushcheva. When the Berlin Wall was falling, he was called by other socialist leaders saying, well, we need to save the socialist bloc. And he said, no, if they don't want to be with us, we really have to let them go. And this has really never been before, because usually when people try to leave the Russian Empire, center of the Russian Empire sends tanks. While the breakup of the Soviet Union is usually seen through a political lens, it also radically reshaped Europe's military dynamic. Three former Soviet states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, are now NATO members. And the collapse of the Soviet Union also brought the collapse of its own military alliance, the Warsaw Pact. Many former communist states like Poland and Romania that had been tied to the USSR in the Cold War have since joined NATO. It has brought the borders of the Soviet Union's old enemy right up to Russia's border. That, in part, is an element of Mikhail Gorbachev's legacy – 
now railed against by Vladimir Putin as he has sought to justify his invasion of Ukraine. James Hurst. Well, with me is Mary Dijewski, who was Moscow correspondent for The Times during Mikhail Gorbachev's final years. Uh, Mary, what kind of man was Mikhail Gorbachev? I think there are two very distinct faces to Mikhail Gorbachev. There's the genial, kind, extremely charming man that we tended to see in the West and to greet so positively because it was such a change. The other side, which I think maybe has been less mentioned because most of the appreciations have come from the Western side, is how much of his Soviet education and Soviet background he actually brought with him to this job. You know, I remember watching him in the Soviet Parliament. And he had a petulant side. And he also had quite a hard line side. And to say that he presided over permitting the countries of the Soviet Empire, the Warsaw Pact, to go their own way. That's true in one respect, but he seemed to draw a line which in a way is sort of observed a bit today between the republics then inside the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, which were allies, um, but not inside the Soviet Union. So Gorbachev did use force. He used force in Lithuania, he used force in Georgia, and he used force in Azerbaijan. It was in vain, and you could say that it was quite half-hearted. You can also say, as is now said in retrospect, that this was forced on him by hardliners, and that's, that, that's the sort of mythology that we hear today. But I think it's not completely true. Of course, um, Ukraine's independence is also part of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So is Mikhail Gorbachev's legacy as complicated as you're pointing out then because of what's followed? Well, I think it is extremely complicated. And one of the more simplistic points to make might be that the abiding sense of sort of injustice and being disrespected that many Russians have today in the wake of what they see as losing their great power status and the way that the West and the United States in particular, as they see it, are sort of guilty of a degree of triumphalism that that has bred an attitude, you know, we talk about Putin wanting to make Russia great again, to use that cliche. But I think there is certainly a degree of that which lies behind the invasion of Ukraine. It also has to be said that, you know, although today most of Europe is hugely champion the Ukrainian cause, back in 1991, many Western leaders were very averse to the prospect that the Soviet Union might break up. And George Bush in particular actually stated that he was against the idea of Ukrainian independence, even as they were holding a referendum on that issue. And when it comes to the end of the Cold War, do you see it as being down to Gorbachev or was he just the man at the helm who simply steered the inevitable to a relatively soft landing? I think this is one of the eternal questions that probably awaits the judgment of much, much longer term history. It's in a way a very nice positive idea to see Gorbachev as presiding benignly over the relatively peaceful collapse of communism and disintegration of the Soviet empire. My view has tended to be that he was actually swept along in a much, much greater tide of historical process 
processes. And he was a political outcast after the fall of the Soviet Union. Did he ever give any sense of what he thought about the new shape of Europe and the much larger NATO? Again, sometimes we look at it and we say, well, Gorbachev was sort of on our side and against everything that Putin was doing. When I interviewed him in in 2010, I asked him specifically about his views of Putin and, and what Putin's presidency had done until that point. Now, remember, you know, Putin is at that stage only in power for half of what we see now. And Gorbachev was quite careful. He said that he thought that Putin's first term would be seen very positively in having brought stability and unprecedented prosperity. He was much more careful about what came later. On the other hand, you know, to see Gorbachev as a supporter of everything the West stood for would also be wrong because Mm. Gorbachev actually supported Russia's takeover of Crimea in 2014. So, Mary, how will he be remembered? How will you remember him? I'll remember him in those very complex terms as somebody who presided over um, freedom for the half of Europe that was behind the Berlin Wall and changed their lives immeasurably for the better. But you can also see, you know, when, when you travel around Russia, the sense of injustice that continues to this day. And, you know, as we've said, There is an element of that in Russia's treatment of Ukraine at the moment. And I think those two things very much coexist. Mary Dijewski, good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. And my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And you can catch up with past programmes on the website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 